1: Erlon, I will never forget it.
2: Ear Hustle, stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
1: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Partly cloudy skies, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look, I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is ordering flags to be lowered to have staff immediately on all city of Atlanta facilities until further notice. The reason to honor victims of the coronavirus pandemic. In a statement, Mayor Bottoms cited, quote, many Atlantans have lost relatives, friends and cherished community members due to the COVID-19 virus. She goes on to say we honor the lives of Atlanta residents who fall victim to this virus and we will continue to do so until the curve is flattened in Georgia. Again, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms is ordering flags to be lowered to half staff immediately on all city of Atlanta facilities until further notice to honor victims of the coronavirus pandemic. Meanwhile, a major development in the shooting death of 25-year-old Ahmaud Arbery that actually occurred back in February. A video surfaced this week of Aubrey being shot to death after being pursued by 64 year old Greg McMichael and his son Travis in a pickup truck. Last night, the McMichaels were arrested and booked into the Glenn County Jail. Here's GBI Director Vic Reynolds from a press conference held earlier today in Glenn
0: County. We applied the law to the facts in this case and came up pretty quickly with a, with a, with a solid belief that this, there, there's sufficient probable cause to charge the McMichaels with felony murder and aggravated assault. I can tell you that if we didn't believe it, we wouldn't have arrested them. If we believe it, then we're going to put the bracelets on them. And that's exactly what we did yesterday evening. And so we're, this case, when it is, is handed over to Mr. Durden for ultimate prosecution, will be complete. It will be done, and every stone will be, over, will be turned over, I promise you.
2: Director Reynolds went on to say the investigation is not over.
0: but I will tell you categorically that it's still an open, active investigation. We're continuing to look at all the evidence. They're continuing to do things that haven't been done yet, and we'll plan on doing that the rest of the time it takes before they make some uh, decision or conclusion whether or not probable cause exists to arrest anyone else.
2: In a statement, attorney Benjamin Crump, who was on the program yesterday and represents Ahmaud's father, Maurice Aubrey, cited, quote, it's outrageous that it has taken more than two months for Ahmaud Aubrey's executioners to be arrested, but better late than never. This is the first step to justice. This murderous father and son duo took the law into their own hands. It's a travesty of justice that they enjoyed their freedom for 74 days after taking the life of a young black man who was simply jogging, close quote. According to Crump, Ahmaud Arbery would have turned 26 years old today. And WABE News will have more during All Things Considered hosted today by Emil Moffitt. Now later in this program, British Consul General of the Southeast Andrew Staunton joins me to discuss COVID-19's effect on trade with Georgia.
3: Trade flows will be impacted. I don't know to what level at this point. I think that's the thing that we're all trying to get a focus on because it's not just in goods but I think total exports from Georgia to the United Kingdom are about 3.4 billion dollars a year which is quite important. But first
2: the latest information as it relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. As of 10 30 this morning there are 31,679 COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,353, and there are 5,878 hospitalized. Now that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health again as of 10.30 a.m. today. Meanwhile, nearly 1.6 million Georgians have filed for unemployment due to COVID-19. That's according to the State Labor Department. Nearly half of applicants qualify for state unemployment, and according to officials, the other half could still qualify for federal benefits, which could provide an extra $600 a week. Officials say many are filing for unemployment for the first time and don't know they need to verify their status with the department every week in order to keep receiving benefits. And finally, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp announced yesterday Georgia has increased its testing capacity. Now, according to the governor, everyone may now be screened for COVID-19, not just those who are symptomatic or who have been exposed. But he acknowledged the state is still working to make sure those tests can be processed quickly and accurately.
0: Our efficiencies at the lab, expanding labs, we're looking at a lot of different options. We've had a whole team working on that over the last two or three days uh, to really solve that problem.
2: Now, officials say Georgia has jumped from 46th in the U.S. in per capita testing to 29th over the past three weeks. Well, joining me now to discuss this and the week in coronavirus-related news is WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Sam, as always, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rose. Let's begin with Governor Brian Kemp's most recent press briefing, which was just yesterday. And the governor highlighted what he called record highs in testing. But let's get some clarity here, Sam. Who's eligible for testing through one of
1: Georgia's sites? Well, that seemed to be a little bit of the news the governor made yesterday. Um, He is now encouraging anyone and everyone to get tested, even if they don't show symptoms. And I think that really shows how far the state has come with regards to its testing capacity. You might remember early on tests were reserved for people with symptoms and a known exposure to someone who had COVID. Um, Those were later relaxed to frontline workers. uh, And now that's been relaxed even more. So really anyone can get a test. And in the last few weeks, the governor has stressed that the state has testing capacity it's not using. Um, There are tests they can run that people aren't actually availing themselves of. So that seems to be why the governor is now saying, anyone, come get a test.
2: And Sam, typically the results, can folks get them within an hour, a day? What's that process like?
1: You know, I would say it depends on where you go. Um, there are, it, There is at least one rapid testing site here in Atlanta that I know of. This is the one that's been running at Georgia Tech for some time now. Um, that promises test results while you wait. Uh, the rest, it kind of just depends. Think about how a test works. Once the sample is taken, it mm-hmm. potentially has to be sent off to a lab. Um, that transportation, uh, that uh, can take some time. Um, And there are hiccups. Um, There was a report out in the AJC this week, uh, an investigation they did found that a state run partnership actually lost a number of tests and more than 4000 results had been delayed for folks. So it's it's still not a seamless process.
2: Well, Dr. Kathleen Toomey, of course, who's head of Georgia's Department of Public Health, she's been talking about widespread testing of Georgians without symptoms, as she put it, is particularly important. But Sam, educate our listeners as to why
1: well we know that uh you can potentially have covid and not be symptomatic that's something we have known for some time um the idea of testing more people is really just to find out who is currently sick because once we know that we know who might need to quarantine themselves because once we know that we know who might need to isolate Um, and then the state can actually use that to track down who that sick person has been in touch with to get those people to potentially isolate as well. Um, that's what's called contact tracing. We've been hearing a lot mm-hmm. more about that recently. Um, and that's really seen as a way to let the economy and society open back up while keeping this pandemic under some kind of control. So if we can test as many people as possible, we can potentially figure out as much as possible who we need to isolate and, and who they've been in touch with who might need to do that too.
2: And so the hope is the more tested, we'll bring down the confirmed cases and so forth.
1: Yeah, I think that is part of it. So the governor yesterday talked about the percentage of all the tests they've done that have come back positive. And he pointed to that number going down um, and that that is a good sign, he says. Uh, but you have to think if the state is letting anyone and everyone who wants a test get a test, that alone seems like it's going to drive down that percentage of positives because, say, a healthy person gets a test, then that's not going to, you know, make the state's numbers look worse. So some of this could potentially be just, you know, trying to play with the numbers a little bit.
2: Sam, you mentioned the need for tracers. And last month, Georgia was in need to hire tracers. So they figure prominently in all of this as well.
1: Oh, sure. And these are people whose jobs it will really be to, once the state knows someone is tested positive, to kind of recreate that person's web of contacts to see who might have also been exposed? Now, Dr. Uh, Toomey with Department of Public Health says the state's looking to hire 1,000 contact tracers. Mm. Um, some experts say that number is not enough, even though it sounds like a like a big number. Um, she says her agency is currently training about 200 of those people, with plans to hire about 300 more in the coming weeks, and that applications are pouring in. Um, she says they've received about 1,000 applications. Um, you know, but just to to maybe put a a caveat here. This kind of disease detective work maybe sounds a little bit sexier than it's potentially going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, My sense it's going to be more akin to working at a call center and calling people up and asking them questions, not necessarily like hunting people down. Um, So a lot of this work, it does seem, can be be done remotely. And
2: Sam, I want to get to concern that's not only here in Georgia, but throughout the country. Talk to me about what's happening in long-term care facilities and, and what kind of oversight is happening in these settings.
1: Yeah, that to me seems to be the real story now. Um, So at this point, upwards of 45% of all the deaths from COVID here in the state have happened in these settings. These are long-term care facilities, nursing homes. Um, And this is really where this virus seems to be taking a major toll. What's interesting is that the Department of Community Health, which regulates these facilities, doesn't account for nursing homes with fewer than 25 beds. So Mm -hmm. we only know about what's happening in settings that have 25 beds or more. This this agency isn't collecting or publishing COVID-19 data on settings with fewer than 25 beds. And we checked with the state ombudsman this week for long-term care. There are some 9,700 beds in these facilities that are smaller than 25 that the state just isn't monitoring. And so the Department of Community Health says they have been investigating complaints filed to them. So if you have a family member in one of these facilities, you can file a complaint. They say they've been following up on those, that they're checking in with these facilities with more than 25 beds on a daily basis. And what they're doing now is they're planning to start more on-site, in-person surveys Mm -hmm. just to try to check on what's happening in these settings.
2: And that's a big difference in the numbers you just mentioned, that 25, and I want to be clear, you said 9,700, correct? Correct.
1: Ninety seven hundred, nine thousand seven hundred. And you have to think that it, in each one of those beds is a person. Right. So we talk a lot about numbers, but there are real people behind these.
2: And Sam, as we wrap up, it's a question that you look forward to every week. I'm sure I've asked it before. I might as well ask it again. Is the state still on track for this surge that we
1: keep that we've been hearing about? You know, I think it's not so much a question of, of on track the way that I like to think about it. Is there a potential for another ramp up in cases, surge in cases and other surging cases. And I think that potential is there. So even if the state of Georgia is vastly kind of undercounting and underfinding, we'll say, people who have caught this virus, that's still a very, very small percentage of this entire state who's gotten sick. And what that means is that a majority of us haven't gotten sick, which means we're all potentially still vulnerable to this virus. And mm-hmm. so You know, we certainly have seen that social actions and things like sheltering in place can can step uh, can slow the spread of the virus. But as those uh, restrictions start to be relaxed, you know, we're all just kind of sitting here potentially vulnerable to this thing. So for me, it's not so much will there be a surge, but, you know, the potential is there.
2: Mm. W.A.B.E. health reporter and the host of Did You Wash Your Hands podcast, Sam Whitehead. As always, Sam, I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.
1: Thank
2: you, Rose. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We know the numbers are constantly changing. According to the World Health Organization, more than 250,000 have died worldwide due to the coronavirus. Nationally, the United States has more known cases of COVID-19 than any other. But this Monday, there was new data that emerged from another part of the world, the United Kingdom.
4: We know that 194,990 people have tested positive, and that's an increase of 4,406 cases since yesterday. And of those who have tested positive, 29,427 have very sadly died, and our hearts go out to everyone who has lost a loved one throughout the coronavirus challenge.
2: Now, that was British Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab at a press conference earlier this week. And for the first time during this pandemic, the U.K. now leads Europe in the number of COVID-19 related deaths, surpassing Italy. And while countries around the world, they've all developed their own strategies for dealing with this virus. But what can we learn from each other? What can nations learn from each other? Joining me now to discuss this is British Consul General Andrew Staunton. He's based right here in Atlanta and represents the southeastern United States. Consul General, thank you for taking the time.
3: Thank you very much, Rose. Great to be back in contact.
2: How are you doing? I know like everyone else, uh, you're working from home. The consulate obviously is, uh, people aren't there basically.
3: Yeah, I know we're all working from home, but we're continuing to do what's expected of us, uh, particularly providing consular assistance to British nationals and citizens who have experienced problems during the coronavirus uh, epidemic. Uh, that started with uh, issues around travelling back to the United Kingdom mm-hmm. via uh, air services. But then uh, my team was also very active in helping our colleagues in Florida deal with uh, a lot of cruise ship passengers and crew, who were obviously struggling to dock in parts of the United States to continue their homeward journeys. But uh, really delighted that uh, particularly for the passengers, all British passengers have managed to get back to the United Kingdom. Uh, so we were delighted to help in that endeavor.
2: How were you all able to help? And also, I imagine you, you've you been fielding a lot of questions from British nationals here, seeking some assistance, but you are limited in what you all can do. But how have you been able to help?
3: Well, it's changed our world quite a lot. I mean, for a number of years, we've uh, delivered a lot of services online, and. Uh, Uh, provided information through call centres. But uh, what we've had to do is really focus in on what are the key services we provide to British nationals. So, for example, if someone loses their passport, we have a system of issuing emergency travel documents, which usually requires someone coming to the consulate, a number of tests being performed face-to-face. So we've had to come up with novel ways to do that remotely. So what we've done is really sort of look at everything we do and understand what we can do virtually, and I have to say the technology such as Zoom, which we're using today, uh, really helps us do a lot of uh, maintaining that contact, t- undertaking the checks that are necessary, uh, but really providing assistance to British citizens.
2: And what kind of assistance were some people seeking that you all just weren't able to provide? Well,
3: so- Quite a lot of the assistance is signposting, you know, telling people where they can get the the information. We have various categories of uh, British citizens, you know, those who are most vulnerable, say, stranded British travellers who couldn't get back. We were fortunate for that initial period that uh, many of the airlines continued to have transatlantic services. So it was giving them the information about where they could catch flights to get back to the United Kingdom. Obviously on cruise ships, we were organizing repatriation flights from places like Fort Lauderdale and also Miami. So so a variety of uh, challenges have been uh, given to us, but uh, we use our social media, our digital media, and the British government, like the American government, has a, a whole series of travel advisories for people who are in other countries about how to get home. And obviously, uh, the British government decided to advise against uh, anything but essential travel globally, which was very unusual. So mm-hmm. we're, we're in novel territory here, and we're doing our best to provide the best advice.
2: Speaking of advice, whom do you all follow in terms of making that decision for if you want to reopen uh, the consulate? Will you follow maybe Georgia's guidelines? Will you follow your British guidelines or the UK? How will you make that decision?
3: Well, it's a, it's a combination of many sources of advice. Firstly, obviously, as the Consul General here, I have a duty of care to my team members. Uh, so we look at the advice from the Georgia State authorities. We look at the advice from the UK authorities. But we also look to see what our building management company is saying. Uh, we look at the situation around public transport. We look at the situation around uh, individual circumstances, which are a big part of this decision. We've proved to ourselves that we can work virtually and remotely and perform probably about 95% of the things we must do. So what is that compelling operational requirement to be back in the office when we can operate very successfully from a distance in a safe manner?
2: Mm. Meanwhile, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has indicated that the lockdown measures in the UK could be eased starting next week. What are your personal thoughts on that? I mean, obviously, I know you have family and friends back there. Do you have some concerns?
3: Well, I think there's a meeting of the British Cabinet, which uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson will chair today. And I think he's already let it be known that from Sunday, he will make a series of announcements. And I think you focused on the key word there, Rose, is easing, not lifting totally. So Mm -hmm. we will take a step-by-step approach driven by data, driven by our understanding of the science, and driven by some of that technology, you know, contact tracing apps that are becoming trialed and tested in the United Kingdom. And then by our testing capacity and capability. So I I think that uh, the United Kingdom Kingdom government is taking a measured approach uh, to the next steps, because as the prime minister said, when he took back his job, we need to continue to win this battle Mm -hmm. and we need to move forward in a way that we will, overcome the challenges, and we do not want to see anything that would lead to a second wave. So there's a lot of uh, engagement with the public, there's a lot of uh, daily press uh, conferences, where I think a lot of important information has been imparted, but in a very measured, professional, calm, and based on data way.
2: That being the case for those British nationals here in the Atlanta, not only Atlanta, but in the Southeast, would they, to your knowledge, would they need to be cleared of testing before they could go back home, to your knowledge? How would that work?
3: No, at this moment in time, the situation is that uh, people who want to fly to the United Kingdom are going back to the United Kingdom on commercial services. And then there is advice that they might want to go through a period of isolation. Uh, I think it's for seven days. Uh, But there is no restriction For example, for British people wanting to fly to the United States at this moment in time, uh, there are certain categories of visas which make that possible. But for the vast majority of British people, uh, they don't have that opportunity to get to the United States. But uh, those situations may change in the near future.
2: Let's shift for a moment, uh, Council General, and just talk about the impact this is having in terms of economic consequences, and, you know, part of your role here in the United States, obviously, is to also help with partnerships in the United States. And Georgia enjoys a partnership with the UK. From your lens, you see this being a long, the long-term effects of this pandemic, particularly as it relates to trade between the two nations.
3: Well, Rose, it's clear that. Uh many companies are having to adjust to the new normal. There's a situation at the moment whereby they're having to set themselves very much uh, different horizons. So quite a lot of this is about contingency implementation. And for many companies, it's about making sure that they can take care of their employees, that they can maintain those trade flows, they can maintain those business flows. So at this moment in time, the Department of International Trade I have a team here who work Mm -hmm. for that department, are very active in supporting British businesses that have already established in the state of Georgia and the states of the southeast. And mostly that's been, again, around advice. It's been, again, around providing individual support, signposting them, helping them navigate, because ultimately these companies are faced with the same economic impacts that's confronting many companies in the United States. We have a We have a whole host. I think uh, at this moment in time, there are almost 34,000 Georgians employed by British companies. Mm -hmm. So it's important that...
0: Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor, while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu.
3: That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T.edu. Uh, we ensure that uh, these companies have the right access to the right support at the right time, to help them not just get through this most difficult moment, but to be prepared to prosper in the future. So we are having many webinars, uh, conference calls, providing information. But some of these companies quite rightly look to the United States authorities and the state of Georgia authorities for uh, any support that can be given from them. Because you have to bear in mind that these companies are employing Georgians, they're employing Tennesseans, they're employing people from Alabama. So it, we're in this together.
2: Have you had any conversations or have you even gotten wind of that due to the pandemic, that there could be some layoffs from some pretty major companies in here, businesses here?
3: Not not yet. Uh, and the, the nature of the British uh, companies here are very much in the professional and legal services space. So quite a lot of their services are being highly sought after by other companies who are trying to understand, say, for example, the change management processes, or who need legal or financial advice, so that consultancy sector is doing very well. And then, obviously, we've got uh, companies that are part of the supply chain, supply chain to companies like Delta, and they have to take account of uh, what the situation is, you know, how how much Delta will be procuring in the future, given that it's gone through. So I think. Uh, there are so many interconnections and interrelationships at this moment in time that uh, uh, it's gradual, step by step, moving forward, adjusting, understanding what their clients and stakeholders need, and then being as properly prepared as they possibly can be for uh, when the economy starts to recover.
2: And Georgia exports about $1.2 billion worth of goods to the UK, you certainly don't want to see that disrupted, but we could see, we could see a significant uh, reduction in that or a decrease.
3: Yes, Rose, it's clear that uh, trade flows will be impacted. I don't know to what level at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that uh, there have been periods where the volume of uh, goods arriving in Charleston and Savannah, for example, has been down a little bit. but. Uh, I think that's the thing that we're all trying to get a focus on, because it's not just in goods, but uh, I think total exports from Georgia to the United Kingdom are about $3.4 billion a year, Mm -hmm. which is is quite important. We want to, even through the period of COVID-19, we want to build that trade relationship. I think you mentioned earlier, free trade agreement negotiations, which were launched on Tuesday by uh, our International Trade Secretary Liz Trust mm-hmm. and uh, Ambassador Robert Lightheiser, which is about building at quick pace a comprehensive free trade agreement between the United Kingdom and the United States, which will be a best-in-class comprehensive agreement.
2: And this is an area that obviously you have a lot of history in, but are there mm. lessons to be learned in terms of trade and trade agreements?
3: Well, well I think uh, the last Three months have shown the importance of reliable supply chains and having sources of production which uh, work during the most trying times. So, I think uh, the role of government, the role of myself, is to try and allow business to do business. But I think at this moment in time, when we're looking at uh, what are those key products that we require, there'll be a real focus on ensuring that we have access to them. That our free trade agreements allow us to have developed those relationships so that uh, US producers know that they have a reliable customer in the United Kingdom and vice versa. So I would actually say that, uh, that trade has made the world very successful. And even if we have to look very carefully at some of our supply chains, it's important that we do understand how interlinked the global economy is at this moment in time.
2: And before I let you go, I want to talk about, if you can clear this up, because I've been seeing different headlines from Reuters, it said, false claim, the UK government has changed the law to make everyone get vaccinated against the coronavirus. <laughs> what do you make of that?
3: Well, well, I think uh, my first comment is that there is no vaccine mm-hmm. available uh, that anybody has released onto the market. And my second point would be that I I think that's just the sort of thing there's so much speculation out there. So many people looking to get the inside scoop moving forward. What I do know is that uh, British research institutions such as Oxford University are doing the right thing about trying to work to find a vaccine. And one of the things the UK government is leading the world on is about uh, supporting Vaccine Alliance. We're going to host the Global Vaccine Summit on the 4th of June, Mm. which is part of efforts to build that international coalition, not just to find the vaccine, but to ensure that vaccine, when it is found, is shared with people around the world in a non-competitive way. And also to ensure that the poorest nations, those 68 countries that uh, uh, receive official development assistance, are also able to get that vaccine because some of these countries, their healthcare systems are not what you would experience in the United Kingdom or Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So it's important that uh, we look at this, as we have always done, we look at our international development approach in a way that really targets any scientific developments to the good of all people.
2: British Council General Andrew Staunton, who represents the Southeast. Thank you so much for taking the time. I always appreciate our conversations.
3: Stay safe. And to you, Rose, stay safe, and to your listeners.
2: Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Never before have the words social distancing been used so much so often. No doubt it's important as we all await for the decline in COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and of course deaths. When that does happen, a lot of what used to be the norm probably won't continue. Some business models will change because, who knows, the mood of society, it changes as well. And obviously, people may not want to be packed into one space anymore. Several months ago in September, I spoke with the founder of an Atlanta-based startup called PadSplit. The business has a bold mission to, quote, solve the affordable housing crisis one room at a time. Now, here's the business founder, Atticus LeBlanc, back then.
4: We find people who are vetted that need affordable housing options, specifically folks in the workplace primarily, and then we pair them with landlords who have properties that are available and suitable for these types of uses where we can effectively generate higher returns for a landlord while also creating more affordable housing for people who need it most.
2: That was then. This is now and now includes the coronavirus pandemic. So how does a startup that specializes in co-living alter its model that will still attract folks and hopefully ensure detail to health and safety? Well, joining me now to give an update is PadSplit founder Atticus LeBlanc. Atticus, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. It's been a while.
4: Well, thank you so much for having me back, Rose. I uh, always appreciate the opportunity to chat and happy to share what we've been working on.
2: You know, as I've been asking a lot of folks uh, to offer their reflections on this extraordinary time that we're living in, obviously when we spoke back in September, neither one of us could have imagined this. What do you make of it?
4: Um, yeah, it's uh, it's certainly been a challenge, and I think a surprise to to all of us here, uh, and has adapted not just the way that we live, but the way that we operate. And one thing that hasn't changed is uh, is our mission and. Uh, if anything, the the need for more affordable housing options and the appreciation for those who work and serve in our communities um, has become even greater. and And we acknowledge that uh, the need for for more affordable options in our societies, uh, and frankly, ones that are that are safe for them because these people, uh, as has been illustrated over the last sixty days, really are representative of frontline workers in in many cases.
2: So the mission hasn't changed, but are you looking at your business model in terms of now folks might be a little bit more concerned about renting a space for other individuals? I mean, this is a co-living model. Are you all looking at mm-hmm.
4: that? Yeah, so uh, it, it has changed to some extent. I, I would say the demand certainly has not decreased. If anything, it's increased. Uh, and the important part to keep in mind, too, is the alternative options. And when you have folks that 84% of occupants in extended stay motels are living there full time uh, and you still have folks that are forced to live in their cars, uh, you have to consider what those other options are and the relative health and safety of those options uh, and the stability that they provide for the, for the households that need them. For us, uh, early on, we, we took a number of precautions. Uh, and have spent uh, a fair amount of time and effort, uh, at least in the early weeks, coordinating delivery of soap and cleaning supplies and sanitizer and toilet paper. And so a lot of those efforts are still ongoing uh, to this day, even as the supply chain has has stabilized a little bit more. And uh, making sure that all of our members understood and were following the CDC guidelines for how they could best prepare inside their homes uh, fortunately, we have not been dramatically affected thus far. We've only had uh, two cases noted, both of whom have recovered uh, out of 730 members. So we're, we're very grateful for that. But, uh, but we've, we've taken a number of precautions. And honestly, we just haven't seen the, the decrease in demand that, that you might otherwise expect uh, from, from folks that would, uh, I guess, anticipate uh, fear of a co-living model. Uh, it just hasn't really materialized, and I think that is just indicative of uh, the the other options that are available uh, to this population and and the desperation uh, of the situation.
2: You talked about two confirmed cases that you know of among your 700 plus members. For those two individuals, were they quarantined in that in a house or were they hospitalized? I know there's some laws around what what information you can share, but how did you protect the other renters in that house?
4: Sure. Yes. Yeah. So uh, in I don't know all of the details of each case, again, and, and have to be really careful around uh, privacy guidelines. But uh, suffice to say, we the feedback that we had from from other members in the House was that they they felt like they were protected and that the the actions that we took uh, and the communications that were had as sensitive as they as they were and the communications with those members that had been exposed uh, resulted in uh, in positive outcomes for everybody, and, and we haven't had any uh, any lasting impacts uh, in in either of those situations.
2: Let me ask you this: for individuals, for new members, for new potential members, are y'all asking or requiring any screening before they can be approved?
4: Yeah. So, so the biggest thing is just asking people again, reminding them of those those um, CDC guidelines and to distance themselves from others, uh, where and how they can, and continue to disinfect surfaces that that may be shared. The biggest thing that we've asked all new members and existing members is to refrain from having any guests over uh, at any point in time uh, so that we know that we are limiting the the number of people that are coming and going from the property at, at any point.
2: Are you all providing any extra assistance in keeping these, these properties clean? Or are you leaving that up to the members yes. who live there?
4: Yeah, no, um, uh, so there's, there's a balance there as well, um, but, but we have been uh, sending our maintenance team out, uh, even though we've tried to limit their exposure to whatever extent possible. They have been going out for really since the beginning around March 15th uh, and disinfecting services and delivering cleaning supplies, uh, soap, toilet paper, uh, necessary essentials that would be uh, required to, to maintain a, a safe and hygienic environment. Uh, and And so that's something that we've we've kind of doubled those efforts mm-hmm. to make sure that the uh, the places stay uh, as clean as they possibly can while at the same time also asking for additional responsibilities from our members to keep those places clean and sanitized as well.
2: Atticus, you just told me that the demand for housing for the what you all offered through pad split but are you also looking at or having a a maximum number of individuals that you will allow in a particular house just because of the COVID-19 pandemic and I know in some of these places there's just one bathroom maybe one or two and you may have up to five people sharing a, a, a house so have you modified that at all?
1: Yeah, So the
4: standards have not changed. And one of the things that we reviewed with with our advisory committee of nonprofit partners, including some health organizations, has has been taking the model and looking at it, not just through the lens of as it exists today, but also relative to what the other options are. And particularly when you have people that are faced with potential homelessness, just the ability to to clean themselves uh, and to have access to running water uh, is a major issue. Right. And, And a significant upgrade from. From other alternatives that that may be out there, so it's I think it's important to consider uh, this use case in relation to what the other alternatives may be. But our specifications around uh, the sharing uh, one bathroom among three people uh, has not changed. We've we've just reiterated the policies and around how do they make sure that that they treat those. Spaces that are shared in a respectful way, and to be even more keen, keenly aware of the uh, the way that that they're cleaning those surfaces when they are when they are finished using whatever those common facilities may be.
2: But again, for new members and someone out there listening says, Atticus, the motto is great. the The mission is great. What you're all trying to do in terms of being, you know, a having a positive solution to affordable housing given that we're all living in this pandemic now, if you're a new member, can you, what precautions are you taking before you bring them into a residence with someone else?
4: Yeah. So in, in those cases, we are, uh, we are asking if they've had any, any symptoms, uh, of, uh, of COVID-19 before entering the facility. But aside from that, when, when we are working in a remote fashion, um, it, we have to rely on the responsibility to a large extent of, of those people that are coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, in. And in some cases where we know they've, they've been tested and they have tested positive, we're setting aside entire properties for those those well sick type patients. But, um, uh, but there's not that much more that, that we can do in our opinion uh, to go out and, and uh, to check the temperature, if you will, mm-hmm. of, of every person uh, before they're approved. Uh, on, a, on a platform basis.
2: Atticus, there's another aspect of this that we haven't talked about, but it's certainly been a big issue. You mentioned so many of the frontline and essential workers who used your pad split uh, services. Have you all been able to work with those members who weren't maybe have some trouble collecting their unemployment or quite frankly, just didn't have the income that they normally would?
4: unquestionably yeah it's uh, and that and that part of the model has changed substantially uh one thing that i didn't mention uh earlier when you were asking me about the the how we how we safeguard the health of our members uh that i should have is we've offered 24 7 access to a doctor since november and that's something that's included in all of the weekly rates for all of our members so if they ever have any suspicion of symptoms uh, they can call via telemedicine those providers uh and and get real-time advice uh, from a licensed physician. Uh, and that's something that that we've included for a long time. and And frankly, as you imagine uh, whether it's a new member or an existing member, that's been a a feature of our uh, of our organization that that has been highly valued uh, since this this whole thing began. In terms of uh, the the other crisis, the economic one, uh, where we've seen much more lasting effects, we acted very swiftly in that regard. We raised over $60,000 in funds from nonprofits and individuals to help current members stay in their homes, uh, and that combined that with uh, $25,000 or a little more in contributions and concessions provided by our property owner hosts, uh, and all that has helped 281 of our of our members uh, continue to maintain safe and healthy housing. Uh, we've also delivered cleaning supplies, soap, sanitizers, toilet paper. Uh, and we've actually coordinated with local nonprofits and churches to deliver uh, 255 meals to folks that uh, that needed it. Um, so it, it's been an ongoing uh, it's been an ongoing process, and it's changed a lot about what we do. Uh, if you go to our website now, you'll see uh, right there on the front page is a is a resource page that that we created uh, to coordinate delivery of services to our members. Uh, including employment services with staffing agencies and emergency financial assistance through a number of providers uh, and health services as well. And then we also started uh, scraping job postings from from job boards uh, so that our members uh, could be aware of those opportunities and understand who was hiring urgently when they uh, may have been employed for a long time and all of a sudden lost their jobs, Uh, making sure that they understand how to apply for unemployment, how to make sure that they file their taxes Mm -hmm. to receive their stimulus checks. Uh, there are quite a number of things that have changed for us uh, in that regard, and one of the reasons why we started waiving uh, any late fees or uh, move-in fees to be able to get people access to housing much more quickly than they otherwise would have, even when they were being shut out of other options.
2: Let's talk about the properties, and have you all still been able to uh, sign contracts with, with property owners? Or has there been a little bit of uh, hesitancy on some of the owners because of we're in this pandemic?
4: Not at all. Uh, so it's we've seen an increase in demand on that side as well. Um, I think in large part because a lot of these owners had been using short-term rental services like Airbnb or VRBO and others um, that otherwise could have been uh, more affordable workforce housing options. And now that that market has pretty much evaporated, We've seen a lot of interest from folks that uh, that have had their rooms in their homes or entire homes uh, that have been diverted to that had been vacation rentals, and now they're coming back to to workforce and affordable housing. And there's there's not another platform uh, that can link them to to the, the workforce that really needs these services in the same way that we can uh, with the degree of service that we provide. We have seen some hesitancy among homeowners who are very interested in the model, particularly, uh, I'm not sure you you may be aware, we recently announced a partnership with Atlanta Public Schools to house teachers and their administrative staff, which we're really excited about. But uh, we got a great response from owners from that announcement, Uh, but many of them did say, well, uh, given the fact that that schools are out now and given COVID-19, we're really interested, keep us on your list. Uh, but we're going to wait a little bit longer before we we post a room uh, in our home on on the platform, and we understand that. But mm-hmm. uh, but we're optimistic that as we we start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and and uh, we can have more testing and and decreased risk over time that that we'll see those those hosts list, uh, and can provide more units that are closer to those schools.
2: And finally, Atticus, where do you see this conversation going now that we're all experiencing? A pandemic in terms of affordable housing, particularly as it relates here to the Atlanta region? We've had so many conversations about affordable housing and affordability. Sure.
4: Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. If nothing else, it, as I look back on our, our previous conversations and our community conversations and uh, everything that, that we have done to try to broaden the audience of people that understand affordable housing issues and, and, and the real need for them, if anything, this this pandemic has shined a light on the vulnerability of the population that we depend on uh, every day, right? I mean, you think about anyone who works at a grocery store right now as a frontline worker, uh, uh-huh. and how insecure they are uh, relative to their income for for those housing options. Um, and I, I think it's it's ironic and in some cases sad, and somehow sad that the uh, that it's taken a pandemic. For people to understand the overwhelming need for more affordable housing options, um, unfortunately, as I look at previous crises, <clears throat> excuse me, whether it's uh, the last financial crisis or uh, the Great Depression, these uh, these calamities uh, have have very rarely provided greater equality in our societies, and I feel strongly that now is the time to act and it is not to just have a conversation about something. And, and we've been having conversations about affordable housing for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, if we're not taking action, then we're not making a difference. And I think we have a unique opportunity now, given that the world has changed so dramatically so quickly to, to be able to, to make a truly profound and positive impact now, uh, if we can act quickly, and I'm I'm cautiously optimistic that we will. I know that uh, as PAD Split, we will continue to be at the forefront of a number of those issues, uh, and we're we're proud to be able to innovate around them, um, and and to be able to to provide uh, not just housing but holistic lifestyle um, services for for the people who serve our communities every day.
2: Atticus LeBlanc is the founder of Pad Split. It's an Atlanta-based co-living. Now, should we still call you a startup? Y'all are getting old?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, I think so. You know, that's a uh, uh, that's a never-ending question. I I don't know when you stop calling a company a startup, but uh, maybe uh, I, I can tell you this much: we're certainly still struggling. So, oh yeah, you're a startup. Uh, <laughs> uh, it it still feels that way.
2: No, Atticus, I appreciate you taking the time.
4: Thank you so much, Rose. Really appreciate it.
2: Take care. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelley Knavey. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash And of course you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information... Visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.